0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the first letter of Peter. Peter's first letter is near the end of the New Testament. You may find it more easily by starting from the back and working your way left, rather than by starting in Genesis and working your way right. As I mentioned earlier, we are uh, taking a break from the Gospel of John. We will return to the Gospel of John uh, later in August. But this is a brief uh, four sermon series that we will uh, endeavor to look into the nature of the offices in the church, the qualifications of men to that office, and lastly, the mentality that men who serve should have. And this is because we are about to open a season of nominations. For elder and deacon. It's been some time since we've done that. We got thrown off of our normal calendar, so to speak, by a little thing called COVID. But now we are back and we are seeking uh, your prayerful input for men who would serve as elder or as deacon. Now, I want to take just a moment here to remind you that one of the things that was impressed upon me in our time in Scotland, especially was that it is a principle of the Reformation, rooted in the principle in the Bible, that it is an absolute right of a congregation to choose their own officers or leaders. They are not to be placed over them. And this is a principle that in the Reformation, men and women died for. Because there were attempts, especially by governments, to place ministers or elders or deacons over congregations without their consent. And oftentimes these would be men who would not be known for their godliness, who would not be able to expound the scriptures to the congregation, but rather there would be peerage or there would be benefits that would be gained by this. And so we as a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America follow that Reformation principle. This is God's task of giving leaders to his church. But he has delegated that to you the congregation. You are to prayerfully consider men that you would nominate to office, and then they will be trained and examined by the session and myself, and then you will elect the men that are put before you. So this is a very important task, and if I dare say so, now is the point. If you've been thinking about joining for a period of time, now is the time to do it, because only members can nominate, and only members can vote. It's one of the great perhaps the great privilege of membership in a church. Well, so all of that to say, that brings us now here to 1 Peter instead of John chapter 3. And so our text this morning is 1 Peter 5, the first five verses, as we begin to look at how Jesus shepherds through elders. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Peter 5, beginning at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you With humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us, that we would be able to do more than understand, but Lord, that we would be changed by your word, that our hearts would be softened our minds would be focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in all we do, we would seek to give glory to you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we are about to enter a season of nominating officers. In the coming weeks, forms will be available for you to fill out that will have the biblical passages listing the qualifications for the office of elder and the office of deacon. And we ask you to prayerfully consider nominating men that you have seen at work in the congregation. Men who have gifts from the Lord Jesus Christ. Men who show evidence of grace, of the work of Christ in their life. And so, as a help to the congregation, because we haven't gone through this process in a few years, I determined to bring a short sermon series to you starting here in 1 Peter. Talked with the session and they were in agreement that what we will do is this week we will look at what elders do, or more, as the title says, what Jesus does in the church through elders. And then next week we will look at what Jesus does through deacons in the church. And then the third sermon in this series will go to the epistle of Paul to Titus and look at the character requirements for officers. And then finally we'll conclude with what might be a bit of an odd chapter to talk about officers. Matthew chapter 20. And it's about the mentality that men who serve should have. You may remember in Matthew 20, uh, James and John and their mother are seeking to have the first place among Jesus' disciples. And Jesus reminds them that those who serve should not seek the high places, but should seek humility. And so God helping us will have a better understanding of how the Lord Jesus governs His church. So let's begin then by looking at elders. There are three things that I want us to see from Peter in our brief text this morning. First, in the first verse, I want us to see the quality of elders. What elders look like. Secondly, I want us to see the work of elders in verses 2 and 3. What it is that elders actually do. Because when we get in a few weeks to the qualifications for officers, you will note that the qualification for elder and the qualification for deacon is virtually identical. The only difference is that elders are required to be apt to teach. But all of their character must be the same. And so, as you prayerfully consider nominating men, one of the things that you need to consider, even beyond their godly character, is are they fitted for the task? Are they able to carry out the work that is put before them? I was ordained at the ripe old age of 28 as a ruling elder, and then not quite a decade later was ordained as a pastor, a teaching elder. And I often tell people, you don't want me to be your deacon. I don't have the gifts of the diaconate. And that's not because I think that a deacon is a lowly office. It is a tremendous office. But there is just a difference in gifts. And so we're going to look at the, at the work of elders here as Peter sets it forth. And then finally we will look in verses 4 and 5 at the blessing of elders. The blessing of elders both to themselves and to the congregation. Well, let's dive right in there with verse 1. The very first word in verse 1 is so. It's a little word, but it's a word that's translated in other places in the Bible, therefore. Now, as soon as I say that, you know where I'm going. Because every time we come across therefore in the Bible, we say that the therefore is there to show us, to look back, to show us what the therefore is there for. Peter is following on, and if you look back just a little bit in chapter 4, you will see in verse 17 that Peter is describing how judgment, the judgment of God, begins at the house of God. It does not begin with the bad people out there who are other than us. God's judgment begins in here with His people, and it has always been so. That's the story of the Old Testament and Israel. That's the story of the days of the prophets. You remember the prophet Habakkuk complaining, Lord, why are you judging us when there's so many other people out there who are worse? But you see, God takes great pains to make sure that his people are pure and that they reflect his character. And so this is a reminder from Peter to the elders of the duty that they will have. They have a very important duty because how they operate in the congregation to the benefit of the congregation will be judged by God. So this is important. But next, there's a little phrase here that I think helps us as well. So I exhort the elders among you, Peter says. Now this is not just a descriptive phrase, but it's rather a prescriptive phrase. What do I mean by that? When we are describing something, we're just telling what it looks like. When we are prescribing something, we are saying what it is supposed to be. It may look like that, or it may not look like that, but that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's prescribing it. He's prescribing a principle of leadership. Leadership in the church must be conducted in the context of relationships. You can't elder from a distance. You can't come without knowing the flock. And if we think about this, this makes sense because that is exactly the way that the Lord Jesus Christ conducted his ministry. He was anything but distant or detached. Jesus was among the people. He went in the cities. He went in the towns and the villages. He went everywhere to meet the people. And to meet their needs. So much so that the religious figures of the day got angry with him for it. They said, don't you know you're not supposed to be with that kind of people? You're supposed to just leave them alone. Ignore them. By operating and by being around prostitutes and tax collectors. Thieves. Sinners. That's wrong. But Jesus wasn't afraid to go to the woman at the well. ...with multiple husbands. He wasn't afraid to be found... ...in the presence of prostitutes. He wasn't afraid... ...to show forgiveness... ...to a miserable tax collector... ...named Zacchaeus. So Jesus gives us... ...an example of what this looks like. That leaders are found... ...amongst the people. All the people. Peter goes on. It's not just that the elders are to be... ...among the people... He describes himself as a fellow elder. Now this is interesting because if you know Peter, you know he is a fisherman. And when we think of fishermen, the last thing we think of are academics or Nobel Prize winners. You know, Peter's the kind of guy that you expect when you go up and you, if you met him, you shook his hand, you'd feel all the calluses on his hands from pulling at the ropes and mending the nets. But Peter actually invents a Greek word here. What he does is he takes the word for with and the word for be an elder and he jams them together and he invents fellow elder. Now, we don't see that very often. I think I'm told that really the only language that does this anymore is German. You know, if you go to Germany, you'll find that Germans have a habit of taking two, three, four words and just jamming them all together to make one big, really long word for a concept. That's a little bit like what Peter's doing here. He doesn't just want to say, I'm with the elders. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm just like them. And that's interesting because Peter identifies with the people and with the elders. Because we might have expected Peter to be aloof, to be the super apostle, to be the one who is above all of this. After all, that's the sense we get often in history, that Peter is the first among equals, that everyone looks up to him and waits for him to make the decision. In the Roman Catholic communion, they even call him the first pope. He's in charge of all of the church and everyone else has to listen to him. But that's not the way Peter describes himself. Is that interesting to you? That Peter describes himself humbly. And he does this... Even more in the next phrase. He's not only a fellow elder, he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, what this means is that elders must be a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but it doesn't mean they have to have seen Christ suffer with their own eyes. Otherwise, many of the elders in Peter's day couldn't have been elders, and none of the elders in our day could be elders. What it means is that they testify to the sufferings of Christ. That they believe in what Jesus has done. You know, the word martyr doesn't mean somebody who gets killed. The word martyr in the Greek means witness. And when you testify to the death, you're called a martyr now in modern parlance. So, witnesses to what Jesus has done is a requirement as an elder. But there's an interesting thing about this with respect to Peter. Because we've already said that Peter didn't describe himself in his greatest terms. When you apply for a job, what do you put on your resume? If you're a salesman, you put the great percentage that you increased sales at your last job. Or you put the academic awards that you've earned if you're an academic. Or if you're a businessman, you list all the businessmen, the businesses you've started. You put everything that you've done uniquely or best. But Peter doesn't say here, a fellow elder and the one who walked on water. He doesn't say a fellow elder and the one who saw the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He doesn't say the one who made the blind or the lame man walk. He doesn't give any of his best accomplishments so to speak he says he's a witness of the sufferings of christ and if you remember the gospel story that's not exactly true you remember when jesus was suffering peter wasn't there front and center he was down the street around the corner and up a hall he was not found with jesus you may remember the incident where he's away from some distance from Jesus, he sees Jesus being interrogated, he's warming himself by a fire, and a young servant girl comes up and says, oh, aren't you a Galilean that was with Jesus? And Peter denies Jesus three times with cursing and oaths. So, do you see what Peter's doing here? He's leading with his greatest weakness. The incident that would bring most shame, he highlights. That's the humility of an elder. And he does this intentionally because that humiliating incident shows not how great Peter is, but it shows the power of the restoration of Jesus Christ. And that is something that we need to know and need to see. And so as you think about leaders in the church, you don't want to be thinking about the most successful men in the congregation. The ones who have the biggest houses, or the best cars, or the best businesses, or the plum positions of employment. You may be thinking about men who were criminals, sinners, even notorious murderers like Paul, deniers like Peter. But the key is they have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ so that they are no longer identified with that. Paul says, of such... of of which some of you were, not are. So we're not identified by our sin. We're identified by our faith in Jesus Christ. And so even the most grievous of sins can be forgiven in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Well, Peter says one last thing about who elders are. He says that, He is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And what he's describing here is not the transfiguration. He did see Jesus glorified after a fashion. But it's the glory that is going to be. The glory that every believer in Jesus Christ will experience when Jesus returns and we are glorified. And our mortal bodies are shed. And we are given resurrection bodies and we are glorified and sinless. Because the verb here is very clear. It's not the glory that was revealed on the mountain. It's the glory that is going to be revealed. And so that helps us to see the concept here that we are to rejoice together as God's people going toward that celestial city, going toward heaven. Our time here together is a passing through. It's an important passing through. But we are focused upon the goal. And the goal is Jesus and glory. Well, the second thing that Peter shows us is the work of elders. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. And the very first thing that elders do is right up front here in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. That is among you. And for Peter, this is important. Remember, look back at verse 1. He says, Elders, I exhort you. Pay attention here. What you're supposed to do is shepherd. Now, again, this should seem obvious to us because Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. From his very first days, he fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 2, that prophecy is recounted. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Jesus was born to shepherd. But then if we go all the way to the very end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, to the second chapter of Revelation, in which we see the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. He is described as one who will rule with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. That's how Jesus describes his job description. But the interesting thing is. That the word ruled here in Revelation 2. Is not the normal word for rule. It doesn't mean to be the king. Or to act like a prince. Or even to have authority. The word here is shepherd. It's the same word in 1 Peter 5.2. Jesus rules by shepherding. And so elders are to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And this is what Peter lived and breathed. Because you remember that incident in John 21 when Jesus comes to Peter to restore him. And Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. You remember what Jesus' response is? It's not very good. It's not thank you. It's feed my sheep. And then he asks Peter again, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then the third time Jesus asked Peter, and by now Peter's got to be getting frustrated. What more can I say, Lord? You see, I think Jesus takes a third opportunity, not because he thinks Peter's insincere in his answer. It's because Jesus wants Peter to know that the way you show you love me is by feeding my sheep. I mean, think about when things are repeated in the Bible, how much greater attention we pay to them. You know, one of the things we'll see over and over again in the Gospel of John is Jesus will say, truly, truly, whenever he says that, perk up your ears. Something important's coming. And here, Jesus says three times to Peter, feed my sheep. But sheep need not only to be fed, they need to be protected. Paul gives a warning in Acts 20 to the elders. He tells the elders that when he departs, there will be enemies who will come from outside and those who will rise up from within seeking to destroy the work of Christ in this church. And he warns the elders sternly, and he tells them to protect the sheep. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus has prepared protection for you in the persons of elders. But what that means is that elders need to be very careful that they are shepherding the sheep and not themselves. One of the greatest accusations that can be made in the scripture is that shepherds who care more about themselves and their own pleasure than that of the flock. Jude tells us about shepherds who are described as hidden reefs because they feed themselves. They are waterless clouds. Now, think about the visual picture here. Hidden reefs have boats strike upon them because they don't know to avoid them. Now, think about a waterless cloud. I know we've had some bit of drought here in the Katy area, really not much to speak of, but imagine if you lived in an agricultural society and if it wasn't raining, you didn't eat. There's no Kroger, there's no H-E-B, there's no Costco, there's no place you can go to get food. You're dependent upon the rain. And then imagine what happens when you see clouds come, but they don't rain. The only thing worse than not having rain is having a cloud and still no rain. You'd be doubly disappointed. And so Peter is warning shepherds to shepherd the flock and not themselves. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. Perhaps the best occasion is Ezekiel chapter 34. There is a woe pronounced upon the shepherds of Israel who feed them themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks, God says? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. Elders should be men who serve others. Peter also tells us that after shepherding, another job description is exercising oversight. And this means to look diligently at the flock, at the congregation. To exercise oversight in a way that is helpful, encouraging. And the word here is is very vivid. The best way I can describe it to you is this way. Kids, you might look forward to Saturday, right? Right? We look forward to Saturday. But do you look forward to Saturday the same way you look forward to Christmas? No. This is looking forward to Christmas language. It's you can't wait. Your eyes are wide open. You're not distracted. This is what is going on. And so Peter tells elders that they are to look diligently over the flock. And by doing so, they are to care for the flock. Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 12 and verse 15 it says that elders are to make sure that others do not fall short of the grace of god now that doesn't mean that elders have some kind of magical power that you can bring them into your family and they'll see your people get converted that's not what it means but it means that elders are to take every opportunity to make sure that the gospel permeates the life of the church that the church doesn't get off message off ministry that it is squarely upon the gospel of grace. That is what we are about. And we here at Christ Church have an ordinary means of grace ministry. That means we believe in ministry through the word, the sacraments, and prayer. We're not involved in politics. Not because it's unimportant, but because that's not the church's task. We're not involved in social reform. Not because that's unimportant, but because that's not the main task of the church The church's task is to build up disciples in Jesus Christ. And that is what elders are called for. The third way in which elders serve is by modeling. And you'll see Peter described this in the second half of verse 2 and in verse 3. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now you'll see in each instance, Peter gives a negative and then a positive. He says you're not to do this, but rather to do that. What he's doing is he is highlighting vices that are forbidden in elders. So let's take the first one, for example, under compulsion. That means elders are not to be lazy men. I think I can describe this for you in a way that you'll all understand if you live in a family. There are jobs around the home that need to be done, but people don't want to do them, right? Wash the dishes, clean your room, mow the lawn, pick up the house, all sorts of things. You know this full well this morning if you're a kid, right? You get told to do these things. Although I will say, do not discount the ability of a wife to compel her husband to do work around the house. That happens also. When that work gets done, it's not done joyfully. It's usually not even done properly. It's done to the bare minimum because compulsion is used. You will wash the dishes or you will get no dessert or you will be grounded or you will not be able to. Certain punishments will follow. Right? That's compulsion. Elders are not to serve so that to avoid punishment. No, rather they are to serve willingly. They are to be the first ones to volunteer for that task. Now, I don't know this morning if that means you can walk up to one of our elders and ask them to come home with you and do your dishes. You can try. I will warn you that I'm a teaching elder, so I would probably, I would clean your dishes, but then you'd have to sit through a Bible lesson. So, but, you see, elders should be eager to take on the the work of the church. They shouldn't just be miserly about it, asking others, pointing and telling others to do things. They're to be... First and foremost, and so as you think about men to nominate, you should be thinking about men who are already heavily involved in the ministry of the church. And it could be any number of ways. It could be in helping keep the grounds together. It could be in ushering. It could be in working in the sound booth. It could be in using musical talents. It could be in teaching Sunday school, even to children. It could be any number of ways. But an elder is to be involved in the church. The second vice that's forbidden is greed. Peter says that elders are not to work, for lack of a better word, for shameful gain. And Peter the the Thesaurus is at it again. He invented another word. here. He takes the word for shame, and he takes the word for gain, and he puts them together. And he does this intentionally. Because, you see, we can often misinterpret the Bible. You know, there are some who read the Bible verse... The love of money is the root of all evil. And they mentally take the phrase, the love of, out. And they say, money is the root of evil. Everyone should be poor. And that's not what the Bible says. And so the Bible here in Peter is not saying that gain is wrong. It's not saying keep your elders poor. It's saying shameful gain is wrong. It's the shameful pursuit of wealth. It's taking advantage of people. It's using your authority to gain an advantage that Peter is talking about here. And this is related to another vice that's forbidden, a lust for power. Peter says that we are not to be domineering over those in your charge. But instead being examples. You remember that Jesus says in Mark 10 that that is the way of the Gentiles. And by that, he doesn't mean people who aren't Jewish He means people who are not believers, pagans. Their way is to show their authority and to domineer and to take advantage of others. He says, not so in the church of God. You know, it's interesting. There is a man who is described in the Bible as being forceful, as being domineering, as being able to get his way, compelling others to do what he wanted. Do you know who that man is? You can find him in Acts 19. He's a demon-possessed man. You see, that is not what an elder should look like. There are positive examples that elders are to set for the church. And in doing that, they're just following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. An elder is to be a model of good works, Titus tells us in chapter 2. Verse 7, and that model is an entire mode of life, not just a portion of life. So, an elder is to be the same man in public as in private, in church as in the office. He's to be a model of godliness, not perfection, not sinlessness. As a matter of fact, an elder should be a model of repentance. You should know that your elders are sinners because you see them sin and they ask your forgiveness. They're to be models. Now, lest you think all I'm doing here is putting the elders in a corner. Almost all of what I've just said applies to all Christians. As you go out in the world, you are a model to others. It's been said many times, but it's true. That for many people in the world, you are the only Bible they will ever read. Because they won't ever pick up a Bible. Not because you're better than the Bible. Sorry, you're not. But your actions show the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And very often are the way of evangelism. The opportunities to bring someone to the book of John or the book of Romans or the book of Genesis comes from living alongside them from a period of time. From them seeing your honesty and your diligence and your kindness and your patience. So even though elders are to show this in preeminence, That is to be the mark of all Christians. As a matter of fact, I might say that every one of the requirements we will look at in two weeks for officers in the church are requirements for Christians also. It's just that officers are to have them in a way that is abundant and obvious. Well, we've looked at a description of elders. And we've looked at the work of elders. I want to conclude briefly with verses 4 and 5. And the blessing of elders. Verse 4 tells us first that one of the great blessings of elders is what they receive. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Think about that. Do you know what an unfading crown of glory is? Me neither. But I'll tell you what. I want one. Peter describes it this way. Can you imagine what that would be like to receive not just the words, well done, good and faithful servant, but a token of that? You see, that's a reward for elders. And why does Peter do this? Is he somehow trying to bribe men into serving as elders? Well, you know, if you're willing to do this and do all the hard work, unfading crown of glory for you, who's up for that? There's my volunteers. No, no, no. I think it's actually the exact opposite. What he's saying is don't look for any earthly reward at all. Don't look for a big paycheck. Don't look for a vacation home someone will give you. Don't even look for a stellar reputation. Because let me tell you, in our day and age, standing for the truth of God's word will earn you scorn in the world and in the workplace. But none of that matters. Because Jesus has an unfading crown of glory waiting for those who serve his church. There's another blessing that we don't often think about as a blessing. A blessing for elders is that they are brought close to obedience to Christ. You see, in verse 4, it's when the chief shepherd appears. Elders aren't their own boss. They're not the ones in charge. They don't call all the shots. You know, I'm the senior pastor here at Christ Church. And we are blessed with a wonderful and numerous staff and session and deacons and ministry team leaders. But you know what? I'm not in charge. Jesus is in charge. I serve Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. He's the one you have to follow. If you're going to follow me, only follow me as I'm following Jesus. And if you see me swerve away from Jesus, you follow Jesus and not me. But you see, by having this responsibility, elders are blessed with a really strong sense of what it means to have the chief shepherd and to be accountable to him. Elders do not represent members of the congregation. This is sometimes a cause for confusion. We think about elders like congressmen or senators. And there is a sense in which our form of government is modeled after Presbyterianism. But it's not as if you should say to yourself, listen, I'm really passionate about missions. So I need to find someone who's willing to talk missions up in the session room and make him an elder so he could be the missions elder and push that across the finish line. Or worship, or music, or children's programs, or outreach, or evangelism, whatever it is. Elders don't represent the interests of the people. Elders represent Jesus Christ to the people. They serve the people by bringing them Jesus. Verse 5 is a very interesting verse following on because it brings non-elders into the picture. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Everywhere that I have seen that the Bible uses this word likewise, it's drawing a very clear connection between what comes before it and what comes after it. It's not causal like therefore. Therefore says, because this first thing is true, therefore this second thing is true. Now, likewise says, both of these things are true equally. They don't cause each other, they're the same. And so what Peter is doing here is, he's encouraging the flock, the congregation, to know that they have a chief shepherd. That they have blessings and benefits. That they are to develop their gifts and serve under the authority of the elders, and that they are to submit to the elders. Why? Well, because that's how we show humility to one another. We don't submit as a congregation to the elders so that things are done efficiently, even though that might be true. We don't submit because elders need to have their egos boosted. No, we submit because all of our life as believers is a practice in submission and humility. If you don't like submission and humility, you better examine your heart. Because that's what eternity is going to look like. No matter how powerful you are here on earth, you are not in charge in heaven. There is one king. King Jesus. And so, what could be better for us as believers than to start practicing and honing that skill of subjection and humility in God's church. That's what Peter is saying here now. Well, Peter has shown us, in conclusion, the connected nature of the church. Elders are a part of the congregation. They're not onlookers from outside. They're not brought in. No. They are a part of God's people. And because of that... The care for the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus has left two elders. Jesus could have cared for the church in many different ways. Not the least of which could have been angels. We could have been ruled by angels. It's not like Jesus doesn't have angels to spare. But what he's done is he's decided to rule his church through elders. Make no mistake about it. Jesus in his office of king is ruling the church. He just chooses to do it through elders. Well, Jesus has designed all of this for our good. To work out our salvation. And to build up His church in His image. That's why Jesus has given us the gift of elders. Let's pray.